This is Chapter 6 in a series of media resources accompanying the Starting Point Conversation Guide. Sinai Code is a message series delivered at North Point Community Church by Andy Stanley. Why does God give humanity rules to live by, and why in particular did he give the Ten Commandments to Israel? Andy uncovers why the law was not a condition of a relationship with God, but rather a confirmation of one. There's a wide, widespread assumption in all world religions, just about, and, um, and certainly Christianity is no, uh, no stranger to this notion, this assumption. There's this widespread thought, even, even outside religion, just in the world, just with people, that in order to find credibility with God and in order to find acceptance with God, that it's somehow we have to behave ourselves and somehow we have to perform our way into his good graces. I mean, it, it, it says it's been said in different ways from, you know, by different people. It, it's, it's written in different ways in different religious books. But when you drill down, when you get right down to it, it's, you know, there's a good God and bad people. And we got to get gooder in order to get him to accept us and love us and, and get into his good graces or to have credibility with him. I mean, it, you can define it any way you want. There's different rules for different people and different standards. But basically, it just it just comes down to that. Um, and here's a question that you haven't thought of because you have jobs and have to go to school and raise kids and only people like me sit around and think about this kind of stuff. But do you have any idea where that assumption or that notion came from? I mean, where did the idea come from that God is good and we're bad? And so in order to have credibility with God or get favor with God or get God to answer your prayer or get God to heal your, your son or your daughter or your child or to help you with your business... Where did the idea come from that by behaving ourselves or by being good or getting gooder or obeying a law or a standard of doing something or cleaning up our act? Where did the idea come from that by doing better and by keeping rules or laws, we gain credibility or acceptance with God? You know, where did that come from? I mean, that is such a widespread notion. If you're here today and you're not even really sure about that there is a God or heaven or anything. But if I were to kind of pin you down and say, OK, assuming there's a heaven, let's just say that, you know, religion's right. There's a heaven. Do you think you're going there? Why is it that your knee-jerk reaction would probably be to look at the kind of life you're living and then say, I hope so? I mean, why is it you associate your behavior with your acceptability to God? Where in the world did that come from? It is so widespread. It's in me. It's in you. It's just kind of almost in human consciousness. And it certainly shows up in every world religion. This is why some of you, um, the idea of coming back to church, your thought was, well, gee, I, I, I sort of want to go to church and I'd like to connect with God. But before I do that, I gotta clean up my act. I gotta get some things straight in my personal life. I gotta get some things straight with some habits and some people. Um, I, you know, I, I've gotta do better so that when I finally show up at church or when I finally begin to pray, God will look at me and say, oh, you're not so bad. You're doing a whole lot better. I mean, if you come to me two weeks ago, no, no dice. But hey, you know, these last two weeks, you're doing a lot better. And since you're doing a lot better, I find you more acceptable. You have more credibility. I'm going to pay attention to your prayers. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it's, there's sort of that mentality. Why is it some of you who are Christians and, and, and you're not so sure you buy into what I've said so far because you're not so sure you behave your way in, you know, to God's acceptance or good graces, but... Isn't it true that at different times in your life you'll fall off the wagon a little bit and you'll get into some bad sin or something and you'll think, I wonder if I'm really a Christian. I better pray that prayer again. You know, where's that prayer about Jesus forgiving me my sin? Because I, you know, I've not been behaving and since I've not been behaving, I'm not probably, God might not be as accepting and so I gotta fix this. I gotta, I've gotta work on my behavior. Where in the world did that Come from, isn't it's just universal? Isn't that strange? And here's here's where we're going for the next few weeks. I believe, and I think if you think about it, you would agree. And I think history concurs, and our personal experience concurs. I believe that 
that way of thinking has done more to alienate people from God than anything else in human culture. I think the whole idea that in order to be accepted by God and gain credibility with God, I've got to behave my way, perform my way, um, you know, clean up my act. That whole idea that the better I am and the better I act and the better I behave and the more rules and laws I keep, that makes me more acceptable to God. I think that has done more to alienate people from God than anything else. Because guilt does not motivate you to get right with God. I mean, guilt is a very short-term motivator. I mean, we can live with guilt for years and years and years and years and years. And the more we do bad, the guiltier we feel. And the more we do bad, the guiltier we feel. And we feel alienated from God. And the idea of somehow finding acceptance with God along with all my junk, I mean, that's just so weird. So i got to work on my junk and then maybe I'll find acceptability with God. And you know what's so interesting? If ever God has sent the world a message, the message is the opposite of that. That you don't ever, you can't ever, and you won't ever find acceptance with God through your behavior. Ever. I mean, it's, you know, we all believe that and it's kind of buried in all these little pockets of our religious thinking and religious culture. But God sent the world a message. I mean, he sent the world the clearest picture, the most, you know, I don't know how you miss it, message that that is not the case. In fact, if you have to leave early, here's the point of these next five weeks. It's real simply this, that God's laws and rules are not a condition for a relationship. They are confirmation of a relationship. That the rules and the laws of God are not a condition of his love. It's confirmation of his love. And that the story that has been used and misused and twisted to support this whole notion of, you know, God's got a bunch of laws and rules and he sort of threw them out there and he's standing back with his hands in his pockets going, all right, take a shot. Let's see how you do. I gave, only gave you ten. Go ahead. Let's see how you do. We're going here. There were ten. I can't even remember, but a few of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thou shalt not murder. I haven't done that. Oh, there's a pretty high standard you're in. Thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not steal. Okay, I haven't done a lot of that. I haven't committed adultery. And then Jesus came along and said, even if you think about it, you're guilty. Oh, well, then never mind. You know, so that didn't seem fair. You can't even think about it. So, you know. You know, all of a sudden, you, but, but there's this whole thing of that God kind of threw out the laws and the commandments. Jesus came along and jacked them up like beyond anything we could even imagine. And God's back there going, well, just, you know, do the best you can. And when you die, I'll talk to you about it and we'll just see how you did. And all of that stems from this incredible event in history when God broke the silence. I'm telling you this story. When God broke the silence and said, I'm going to give you some rules and some laws to live by. Listen, buried in the story of the giving of the Ten Commandments, buried in the story of the giving of the Ten Commandments, is the secret to the relationship between God's love and God's law. Buried in this story. I mean, right, I mean, it's not even really buried deep. You just have to scratch a little bit. There it is. But in this story, within this story, buried in this story, is the secret to the relationship between having a relationship with God and the rules of God. And right out there on the bottom shelf for all of us to discover pretty quickly is this simple truth that God sent early on. I mean, early on in human history, 1300 and something B.C., God wanted to make it clear that you don't perform and behave your way into my good graces. That my law, and my rules, they're not conditions for a relationship. They're confirmation of a relationship. That already exists. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book in the Bible where we find the Ten Commandments. Anybody know what book that is? 
Exodus. Good. Yeah, that's that's I mean, most people in the world, they don't even know. I believe in the Ten Commandments. Where are they? Bible. (laughs) Old Testament or new? Excuse me. You know, so anyway, Exodus chapter 20. So you're way ahead. Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to to look at this remarkable story. And as you're turning there, I just want to make a couple of comments or observations that we're going to come back to um, throughout this this series. Um, The first one. First one is this. Um, you can discover or you can tell a lot about a person by the laws that they give. Now, this is huge. This is true in your family, in your work, your policy book, handbook at work. You can tell a lot about a person by the rules they give. And you can tell a lot about a person by the to whom they give the rules or who they give the rules to. If I can end with a preposition. You can tell a lot about a person by the rules they establish. And you can tell a lot about a person when you look at who they give their or who they impose their rules on. Now, we're going to come back to that second one at the end of the message, and we're going to talk about these throughout this series. But the whole idea that you can tell a lot about a person by the rules they give, in our family, there are basically three rules for for our kids and growing up. We just have basically three rules. The number one rule, which is far and above and high above all the other rules, the number one rule in our family, and when I tell you what this is, it's going to tell you something about me. The number one rule in my family that I impose on our family is thou shalt respect thy mama. That's it. I mean, you sleep outside. If you show disrespect to Sandra, you're out. I mean, you just, that's just you just do not respect your disrespect your mother. OK, now, you know, if you came into my family and saw how we how we do that, and I do some kind of strange, you know, kind of extreme things to, to I, you know, my, my sons and my daughters. I mean, mom is the queen. You know, you see that in fact, you can go home and you can start making a list of things about me, good or bad, just by knowing that one rule. You know, he's neurotic or he has some bad relationship. I don't know. Good, you know, he, good. Words, you can tell something about me by that simple rule. I can come into your home or your business or any environment that you lead. And if you tell me what the rules are, that tells me something about you. Now, here's what's incredible. We are about for the next few weeks to look at God's rules. And buried when these rules is the secret to his character. We're about to discover what's important to God. Because see, your rules tell you what's important to you. My rules will tell you what's important to me. Rules are values. We're about to discover what is valuable to God. This is, this is incredible stuff. So here's the, the context. Um, Exodus chapter 20 is where this begins. Here's what happened. About three months before this, you know, God is about to give his law to Moses. Moses is up on a mountain, Mount Sinai. And he's got his, all the children of Israel, the Israelites are down in the valley below. Because God said, leave them down there, come up. I'm going to give you my law. Now, let me give you the context. This is so powerful. The nation of Israel has been in slavery for 400 years. Now, you've got to use your imaginations with me because it's hard for us to get our arms around this, okay? The entire history of this people thus far, the entire history, their whole history. I mean, when they went to, you know, elementary school and they studied the history of their nation, the entire history of their nation was slavery. That's it. They had no history before slavery. There was none. Because the nation of Israel started, there was a guy named Abraham who had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons and they had families and they all moved to Egypt as free people. But they were not a nation. They were just a big, supersized family is all they were. And over time, they became a larger and larger family. But they were not a nation. They were just a big family. And then Egypt enslaved the family and made them slaves. And then they grew and became a nation. Their entire history as a nation was slavery. That's it. 
They had slave mentality. They had really poor self-esteem. They were a pure nation of Jews because nobody would marry any of them because they were slaves. You marry up, you don't marry down. You don't. You didn't bring a Hebrew girl to dinner and say, Mom, I want you to meet, you know, she, well, she's a slave. I know, well, you can't date her. She's a slave. So they were a pure they were just a pure race of Jews and they were slaves and their entire history, thought process, and self-esteem was all about slavery. They had no law. They didn't need law. See, when you're a slave, you wake up every morning and you say, yes, master. And if you say no, master, you don't, you know, that's the end. So it's always yes. You don't have to have a government. They didn't have a king. They didn't have rulers. They had some sort of society, a slave society. But they essentially adopted what they could of Egyptian culture, even though they hated the Egyptians, their task masters. All they knew was slavery. That was their whole history. And God had been very quiet. And for 400 years, don't go by that too quick, over, you know, twice what we've been as a nation, twice what we've been as a nation, 400 years, all they knew was slavery and oppression. 400 years. And then God brought them to this mountain and he's about to give them their law. They didn't have any law. They didn't have any rule. They had no society. They had no nothing. And God gives them the law. So God gets Moses up on the mountain. And here's what he says. This is, this is amazing. You ready for this? Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. You can follow with me as I read. We'll put these up on the screen. Ready? This is incredible. So there's Moses. Again, okay, Moses, get your chisel and your stone out. You know, we're about to, you know, that's not how it happened. But, you know, God wrote it in stone. Here we go. And God spoke all these words. Here we go. And this is Ten Commandments. Very beginning of the Ten Commandments. Here we go. And God spoke all these words. And he said, verse 2. I am the Lord, your God, who... And Moses might have said, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Did you say the Lord, your God? Yeah, I'm the Lord, your God. You mean the, I am the Lord, the God? No. Moses, people, I am the Lord, your God. Well, that's like kind of personal, like... You're my God. You mean you're the God. No, no, no. I'm your God. But that kind of implies we got a relationship going. Exactly. Well, we haven't really done anything. I, mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're just like slaves. We, we haven't done anything. In fact, we don't even know what we're supposed to do. That's why I'm here. You're going to tell us what we're supposed to do so we can be good people. And you haven't even given us any. And you're already saying we're your people? Yeah, you're in, you're mine, you belong to me, I am your personal God. <laughs> just like that. Well, not exactly just like that. You, you, you interrupted me. I am the Lord, your God, <laughs> who, and then he takes him down memory lane. This is huge. This is huge. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And all of a sudden, Moses has a little miniature flashback. Because you see, for 400 years, God had done nothing. And suddenly when they had given up hope and despaired and they weren't even sure there was such a, such thing as an Abraham and an Isaac and the God of Jacob. I mean, we haven't heard of or heard about that God in a long time. Maybe that was a, a myth. Maybe that was folklore. I mean, our God has done nothing for us lately. Suddenly, God shows up and he sends Moses and Moses comes into the midst of the people of Israel and begins to speak on behalf of God. I mean, where have you been, God? God he, Moses begins to speak on behalf of God. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, um, God sent me. I know you think you're God, but the God sent me and he says he wants you to let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, I don't think so. I mean, our whole economy is supported by slave labor, which would be your people. We can't let your people go. The economy would collapse. No, your people can't go. 
And so God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So he kept saying no. And then God took this is amazing. God took each one of the Egyptians gods and made a mockery of them. You like the Nile River. You think the Nile River is a source. You worship the Nile River. He turned the Nile River into blood. You like flies, you worship flies, you got flies. You worship frogs, you like frogs, you got frogs. You worship the sun, he blotted out the sun. God took every deity, every aspect of Egyptian culture and one by one made a mockery of it, mockery of it, mockery of it, mockery of it. And the Israelites are standing on the sidelines going, what is going on? This is unbelievable. There's somebody speaking on our behalf. Somebody has come to our rescue. We don't even know his name or her name or its name. We know nothing about but good grief. We have an advocate. We have somebody who's come along beside us. This is unbelievable. And finally, after the economy in Egypt was in shambles, Moses says, okay, Pharaoh, are you going to let us go? And Pharaoh says, no, you can't go. Moses says, okay, this is the last straw. And then God, for the first time, spoke to the nation of Israel. In fact, in this passage we're about to read, I want you to, if you're on chapter 20, I want you to go back to chapter uh, 12 real quick. We're going to come back to chapter 20. Go to chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to read a few verses. This is amazing. Now, don't miss this. this. Especially if you're Jewish, don't miss this. This is incredible, incredible stuff. God, in this moment, issues his first command to the nation. Now, he, they've never even heard from God as a nation. They have never heard from God since they were a nation. And God issues his first command. It wasn't on Mount Sinai. It was while they were in Egypt. And listen to what he says to the people. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month. In other words, we're changing the calendar. You're going to have your own Jewish calendar. This is the first month. Verse 3. Tell the community of Israel. Now he's starting to tell them what to tell the nation of Israel. This is the first time God has spoken to the nation of Israel. Tell them. That on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share it with one of their nearest neighbors, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. So they're going, let me get this straight. God hadn't spoken in 400 years. And the first thing he says is you're going to have a meal. Yeah, this is what I want you to do. I want everybody to get a lamb or a goat. We'll see in a minute and get, get a lamb. And I want you to to have a meal with a lamb. And if you have too few people for a whole lamb, invite some other Friends over the animals you choose. Verse five must be year old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So everybody's going to get a goat and a lamb. We're going to have a big, you know, family festival deal. And at twilight, everybody's watching for the sun at twilight. Everybody slaughters the lamb or the goat. (laughs) And the people of Israel are going is this the same God that like blotted out the sun and the Nile River? I mean, God, he's just, we're going to have a meal? I mean, he finally decides to talk to us. And it's, and by the way, slaughtering lambs and goats, that was like talking on a cell phone for them. They did it all the time. For us, it's like gross and a big deal. This was just, you know, a way of life. So it wasn't that unusual. Check this out. Verse seven. Verse seven. This is when it got unusual. Then they are to take some of the blood And put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Do what? Yes, God has issued a thou shalt. Thou shalt take the blood of the lamb or the goats. And you're to put it on the top of your doors and on the side of your doors. That's really odd. I mean, that's what he wants us to do. That's what God has has commanded you to do. 
In verse 12, skip on down. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and I'm going to strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, and if you wonder why Jewish people call it Passover, here it is. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt, verse 14. This is a day you're to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. A lasting ordinance. Now, here's what God was saying to the nation. And this is, this is so important for you and for me. He's saying, look. Let me tell you what I want to be for you. Not your lawgiver. I want to be your savior. I want to be your rescuer. I want to come right down the midst of the point of your greatest need. And I want to be your deliverer. And all I need you to do. All I need you to do. Is trust me. Because I know it doesn't make a bit of sense. I mean, you know, slaughtering lambs and sheep and goats and eating. I mean, you do that all the time. But taking that blood and putting it over on beside your door. I mean, that's going to feel so strange. It's not going to make any sense. You only have to do it one time. You don't have to do this for the rest of your life. Don't ever forget it. But you only have to do it once. I just want you to do this unusual thing as evidence of your confidence and your trust in me. I want to be your God. I want you to trust me. And standing there at the foot of Mount Sinai with that memory just three months old. And standing at the top of Mount Sinai about to receive God's commandment with that memory just three months old. Here's what the nation of Israel knew and here's what Moses knew. We're not here to get in with God. We're here because we're already in. We're not here to establish a relationship. Good grief, we've got one. We're not here to find out, is he going to be our God? Clearly he is. He delivered us from our captors and we hadn't done a thing. We didn't even know what we were supposed to do. We didn't even know the rules. We didn't even know his name. We knew nothing. We had done nothing. And he just decided, for some reason we don't completely understand, to reach down and deliver us from our captors and to bring us to this mountain. And having established the fact that we are his and he is ours, Now he is about to give us the law we are to live by. You see, right there, right there in the midst of the giving and the receiving of the Ten Commandments is the greatest story and the greatest message you will ever hear as a human being. That a relationship with God is not predicated on keeping rules. He established a relationship with people before they even knew what the rules were. That a relationship with God isn't built around rule keeping and law keeping. Because he illustrated for the whole world. I have chosen for myself a people. Not because of what they have done or how they perform. But simply because they trusted me. They did one unusual unique thing that I just decided I wanted them to do as evidence of their trust in me. I said, I just want you to take the blood of a lamb or a goat and put it on your door as evidence that your confidence is in me. And that's all it took to initiate and establish that relationship of trust. And now that I've delivered you, now that we're in, now that the relationship has been sealed, now I'm going to give you the law I want you to live by.
That's the message of the Ten Commandments. That's the message of the Old Testament. That's the message of the New Testament. And so imagine, imagine what was going through Moses' mind when God went on and continued. Back to chapter 20, verse 2. Here we go. We're going to get the first commandment, okay? And God has said, I am the Lord, your God. That means we got a relationship going on even before you knew what the rules were. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Big rehearsal, you know, big mind, you know, flashback. Big little history lesson there. Oh, yeah, I remember Moses is going, yeah, I was there. I'm the Lord, your God has done all that. And God says, now I'm going to give you the first thou shalt. You ready? I'm ready. This is a big one. I hope you can handle this, Moses. All right, I'm ready. You shall have no other gods before me. Perhaps Moses looked up and went, well, duh. I mean, you put a check by that one. You mean after all we've been through, after all we've experienced, do you think we'd say now nah, we'd like to go find another God? I mean, the fact that you reached down in our point of greatest need and you delivered us in such a dramatic way and you brought us here and you took care of us getting us here and you haven't even asked anything of us at all. We don't even know what to do. You haven't. There's there's no laws for us to break. We don't have any laws. There's no way for us to offend you. We don't even know what offends you. There's no rules that we can trip up over. We don't even have any rules. You have accepted us that unconditionally and said, we're your people. And the first commandment is, by the way, I want I would like to be your God. Absolutely, you're our God. Check. Commandment. Number one, not to get in. But because. We are in now, listen to what I'm going to say. Listen, 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 listen. Rules never establish relationship with your heavenly father. If God gives you rules, it's because you're in. You know what God knows that you know, that every kid knows, that every parent knows, that every politician who's paying attention ought to know? That that rules without a relationship always results in rebellion. That's how we became a nation. We called it taxation without representation. You gave us a rule. We felt like we had no relationship. We became a country. We'll be our own. We don't, we don't need you. You're gone. That's what happened. It's human nature. If you impose rules on me and I don't have a relationship with you, I resist. God knows that he created human nature. He understands that he's not so foolish as to say, here's a bunch of rules. Do the best you can. And then, you know, if you do OK, then, you know, move in my direction. Then I'll decide if I accept you or not. I mean, who would want a relationship with a God like that anyway? We resist that. And that's why many of you have resisted church and resisted God and resisted anything to do with religion or spirituality because you your whole experience and your whole context for managing and dealing with the God thing has been, here's a bunch of rules, do the best you can, and if you do well, I'll accept you. And God's going, whoa, 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 whoa. I never said that. I never implied that. I never inferred that. I never modeled that. I never illustrated it. That years and years ago, 3,000 years ago, in the most dramatic possible ways, I stood on a mountain with the leader of my nation and I said, now, are you are you clear on this? You're in. You're mine. I'm yours. And the commandments are not a listen, listen. The commandments are not a condition of a relationship. The commandments are confirmation of the relationship. The commandments are not a condition of my love. The commandments are confirmation of my love. The commandments are not a condition of acceptance. The commandments are confirmation that you've already been Accepted. Because relationship always precedes rules with God. 
And I'll tell you what, I'm a follower of Jesus now because I love rules. Not in sort of that, you know, I get to go to heaven when I die. I'm t- you know, when God says to me, I want to be the Lord your God, I'm going, put a check by that. Yeah, absolutely, you're the Lord my God in light of all you've done for me. If it, it, it just can't be any clearer. And I don't know how we've confused it, and I don't know how religion has gotten in the way. But if ever God sent a message to this world, it's real simple. The law, the commandments, the rules are not a condition of the relationship. They're confirmation of an unconditional relationship of love and grace and mercy. Let me just give you sort of a silly illustration to punctuate this and we'll be done. If if you're a pet owner and you have a fence, whose dog do you keep in your fence? Your dog, right? You see, you put your dog in your fence. And did your dog become your dog when you put it in the fence? I mean, put it in the fence. Did that make it your dog? Wasn't my dog till I got it in the fence. Became my dog. Dog ran off. Wasn't my dog anymore. <laughs> People down the street call me. It's not my dog. It's got your phone number around its neck. Not my dog. See, what made it my dog was it's in my fence. If it gets out of my fence, it's not my dog. Ownership is all about being in the fence. Now, you know when that dog became your dog? When you purchased it. Putting it in the fence, the reason you put it in the fence is because it already belonged to you. Some months ago, I got home one night, Sandra said, Andy, 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 shadow's missing. We have this black lab retriever, never goes anywhere. We have an invisible fence, kind of like God's laws. It's invisible, you know. <laughs> you bump against, he goes, oh, what was that, you know? <clears throat> Wouldn't it be great if it was that way? And you get that call, would you like to come over? No, I'm not coming over. Because if I, I can't go over, I'm not coming over, you know. We'd all be better Christians, wouldn't we, you know? So anyway, Shadow's gone. And, and my, I got two kids crying upstairs. And I'm, I'm tired. She's going to go find Shadow. I'm going, she's going to come. No, you got to find her. So Andrew's upstairs. I go upstairs, check on Andrew. He's 12. He's up there on the computer. And he's pasted a picture of Shadow on a document. And he's going, if you see this dog, he's got our phone number. He's making telephone pole signs we're going to put out the next day because our dog is gone. So what did I do? I said, well, if Shadow's not in our yard, she's not our dog. <laughs> right? I mean, get over it. She doesn't even belong to us anymore. Now she belongs to whoever's yard she's in. See, that's how it works. If you're in the fence, no. And this is kind of a biblical thing. I got in my car and I went searching for the dog. Why? Because she's ours. And I, and, I, and I was trying to get up in a neighborhood behind. There's not even a neighborhood behind us. There's just woods and pasture and stuff. And I thought she probably ran off there chasing a deer or a rabbit or a tail. She does a tail thing. And so I'm up there looking for her. It's pitch black dark. I, honestly, I'm, I'm going to gravel roads. I ended up in somebody's driveway accidentally. I'm searching because I can't go home without the dog because, you know, it's our dog. And I searched and searched for an hour and I never found her. Because she was in the basement. <laughs> And the analogy ends there. <laughs> now, put those Kleenex away. She's safe at home, back in the invisible fence. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. The moral of the story is God doesn't want you running around in the street. That's not it. Okay. Listen, this is a this is a mind this is a change in our thinking for many of us. 
God has given us rules and laws and commandments because he loves us. Not for us to prove something to him. God has given us laws and rules and commandments because we're in. Not as a means of getting in. And let me just say this. If you've been one of those people who thought, I would love to be in with God. I'd love to know I had a one-on-one thing with God. I'd love to have this relationship I keep hearing about. But look at my life. i got some great news. You don't have to look at your life anymore. God accepted an entire nation of slaves who had done nothing right because they didn't even know what was wrong. They didn't even know it was right. And in the same way, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all your sin, which means he assumed you would be a sinner, which he meant he assumed you would get it wrong. And he didn't die on the cross so you could get it right. He died on the cross because he knew you would get it wrong. And so he says to you, I want you to be mine and I want to be your God and I want to be your personal savior. But I just need you to do what the nation of Israel did some thirty five hundred years ago. I just need you to trust me. I don't need you to walk under a door with the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. I need you to simply place your faith in the blood of my son who died once and for all for your sin. And if you'll do that, you're in. You're in. You're in. Let me ask you something. Have you ever done that? Has there been a time, a moment in your life when you've majored at the decision to place your faith in Christ's death on the cross is the payment for your sin. You've been saying, well, I've been thinking about it, but I'm working on this. And I got it. No, 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 no. See, this, this, you got it all wrong. And the reason you got it all wrong is because people like me got it all wrong for you. And preachers and churches and religions and organizations got it all flip-flop. Because, see, it's a lot easier to control people if you say you have to behave a certain way or you won't go to heaven when you die. That's a lot of leverage. It's a lie, but it's a lot of leverage. It doesn't work, but it's a lot of leverage. And has sent more people away from God than anything else I can imagine. But the message of the Old and New Testament is that God has invited you into a relationship of unconditional love based on nothing you do but on something he's done on your behalf. And just as he delivered the nation of Israel through the blood of sheep and goats, he has delivered you through the blood of his son.